makes me feel good for our church that God has us on his radar. And, and uh, this, I want, you to, I want you to keep us in prayer. This Friday night, we're, we're going, we're taking the students down to, um, to Morgan City for a Section 2 youth rally. And I'm just praying that God would take what happened here Sunday in our students and that we could just haul that down to Morgan City and just let it spill over into the entire section. Wouldn't that be great to see our young people leading uh, in a move of God? So pray for us over the next couple of days. We had a day of prayer and fasting today. And uh, just, if you would, over Thursday and Friday, remember us. We'll be in church at 7.30 Friday night at Brother Bunner's. So uh, just, just remember us as we travel and that God would do something great. I want to give honor tonight to, to Brother and Sister Murphy, Pastor Sister Murphy, just wonderful leaders in our life. I'm so thankful uh, for what they mean to me in my life. I'm thankful for what they mean to this church. Of course, they're away tonight on some much-needed uh, rest and relaxation. We'll be happy to have them back. We, we miss them tonight, but we wish them well. And, and I just want to say publicly how much they mean to me and my family, how much I love them. And I just give them honor tonight. Always, always an honor to, to be in this pulpit and to be, have the opportunity to share the word of God with such great and wonderful people, such great Christians. And I, I give honor to Pastor Murphy tonight. Did you know that your chances of bowling a 300 score is 1 in 11,500? Your chances of being hit by lightning is 1 in 576,000, although some of you thought it had happened a moment ago, right before church started, right? Your chances of becoming President of the United States, 1 in 10 million. Your chances of winning 340 million in the lottery is 1 in 175 million. Of course, that would never happen to any of us because we don't buy lottery tickets, but if you did, your chances would be 1 in 175,000. But listen to this, the chances that you, they say, whoever they are say, that the chances that you were born in this time, in this place, in this circumstance, is one in 400 billion. The chances that you would be here at 745 on November the 2nd, 2011, one in 400 billion. How many knows that, that God has a purpose for you? How many knows that you're here for a reason? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You're not here by accident. I'm not here by accident. What God is doing is not by accident. It kind of reminds me of the scripture. We're brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I believe that every one of us are here for a distinct purpose and a distinct reason. And that, that God, we, we've only seen the beginning of what God wants to do going forward. And I want to be in the middle of that. How about you? Praise God. Praise God. Tonight we're going to talk about, and you saw a little bit on the video, we're going to talk a little bit about dealing with distractions. Dealing with distractions. I'm told, I had no clue, honestly, had no idea. I found out at noon today when my wife called me that uh, we, she wasn't able to make it last night to uh, lift. We had Bible study. And uh, so we didn't find out till the day at noon that this was a similar topic to what the ladies talked about last night had no idea. So I'm just, I'm supposing here that perhaps, maybe, God has something to try to tell us here at Grace about dealing with distractions, because this will be the second time uh, from what I understand. So I want to, I want to uh, just come tonight from the book of Nehemiah chapter 6, and uh, I, I, how many of you have ever heard of a guy named Nehemiah? Does Nehemiah sound familiar to anybody? One of the most fascinating stories in the Bible, just a very interesting character 
and uh, God did some great things in his life. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the book of Nehemiah is there, there's really no miracle recorded in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, there's nobody that's healed, nobody that's, that's demons cast out of them. God didn't part the Red Sea in the book of Nehemiah. But yet, at the same time, something very miraculous happens in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and his team build the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. And it's incredible to think about. It can only be done with God's favor and God's anointing. And so I want to I lift a piece of scripture out of this setting and talk to you about a very specific circumstance that Nehemiah had while he was building the walls. And we'll talk about how Nehemiah dealt with distractions. And we'll talk about how we can use that to model in our lives as well. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. And you know me, I don't like to be conventional a lot of times with my scripture reading. I'm going to read the New American Standard Version. And of course on the screen it will be the, New, uh, the King James Version. But if you would just bear with me on that. I'm reading just simply for the sake of clarity. It does not change the context at all. The scripture says, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors of the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Chephraim in the plain of Ano, or Ono. Everybody say, Oh no. I, I don't know how you say that, but it sounds like, Oh no to me. And Nehemiah was definitely finding himself in an Oh no situation. Uh, and he says here, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messages to them saying, and here's the key. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Would everybody say that with me? I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. That was Nehemiah's response to this request for a meeting. And it goes on to say, he says, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me messages in verse 4. He says, they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Uh, he says here, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And so that's going to be our motto tonight. I am doing a great work, and I cannot be distracted. I cannot follow what you're trying to get me to do. Nehemiah uh, dealt with distractions. And uh, you see a great picture of him there on the wall. Uh, with a sword in his hand. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Uh, great guy, great man of God, really, uh, in my life before his, his untimely passing was, was Coach Dwayne Beetle Bailey. And uh, God just filled him up with the Holy Ghost and did a great work in his life, his family, all in church. And he became just a, an amazing soul winner, amazing witness. Everywhere he went, he told people about Jesus. He had old coaches and old ball players that he'd, he'd worked with through, through the years. And Every one of them, it was his goal in life to get them to come to church. And, and really, maybe that's why God took him in an untimely way, because he had more people at church uh, at his funeral probably than, than uh, that the church had ever seen. But um, Coach Bailey was an outstanding man. And I heard him speak one time, and he said this. He said, you know, uh, remember Coach, he, he coached uh, for the LSU Baseball Tigers, and they won under, under his leadership with Skip Burtman. They won five national championships. And I heard Coach talk about that, uh, that experience, what it's like to go to Omaha, Nebraska, and compete against national teams for the, for the championship and winning five of those. And he, he said, you know, it's not usually the best team that wins the national championship. He says, usually it's not the, necessarily the one that's ranked number one. It's not always the one that has the most talent that wins. He says, when you get to Omaha, as soon as you get off the plane, you're immediately... Uh, bombarded with all sorts of distractions. Now, 
the, the team is there to, to win ball games. They're there to win the national championship. But when they step off the plane, uh, it's not immediately clear that they are there to win ball games. They are, they are attacked, uh, I say that figuratively, they're attacked by the press, wanting interviews and pictures and, and an inside scoop. They're, they're attacked by fans who want autographs and they want their picture made with the ball players and the coaches. Uh, when they, when they uh, step off the plane and, and get just a little ways, Coach said that there's immediately guys from different uh, sporting goods manufacturers that are, are shoving baseball gloves and baseballs and bats into the players' hands because they know if they can get a baseball glove on the hand of that pitcher, that every time that pitcher throws a pitch uh, on national television, the name of that glove and the brand of that glove is going to be on his hand. And so they're trying to get these sporting goods into the hands of the players to, for free advertisement in there. Uh, they're, they're just bombarded by a host of things. The, the younger players that have never been there before are just totally overwhelmed by the euphoria of playing in Omaha at, at this great stadium and before a national audience. And he says there's just distraction after distraction after distraction after distraction. And he says the team that usually wins the national championship is the team that can most easily eliminate the distractions. And so for us tonight, the same is true. If, if we're going to win in whatever area of, of our life it is, whether it's our, our, our walk with God or a calling or, or our families or our marriages, our relationships, we are going to have to understand how to eliminate distractions out of our life in order to win and get to the goal that we have in our life. Nehemiah, as I mentioned, was an incredible man and had a great take on this process. Uh, somebody summarized the life of Nehemiah like this. He said, he saw a need, he rose up, captured a vision, laid a plan, and mobilized others to join him. That's Nehemiah's life in summary. And I'll break that down for you in just a minute. But re remember that during this time, uh, God called a man named Zerubbabel to restore the temple in Israel. He called a man named Ezra to restore Jerusalem's worship and their, their uh, practices of religion, and he called Nehemiah to restore Jerusalem's walls. Now let me give you just a little bit of background. This is during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Israel had backslidden from God for their last time, and Babylon had come in, taken them captive. This is when uh, there were really technically three different occasions when Babylon came in in succession, but, but during this time is when uh, Daniel was taken away and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken away. They, they essentially kidnapped the best and the brightest of the Jewish race and took them to Persia and, and trained them in the ways of the Persians and just decimated Israel and decimated specifically Jerusalem, tore the temple down, tore the walls down, left the place in ruins. And so during a process of time, during the captivity, God sent Zerubbabel, who restored the, uh, who restored the temple, Ezra, who restored the, the worship. And now Nehemiah, as we're going to see, felt called to restore the, uh, the walls around Jerusalem. But at first, Nehemiah was just a cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. The Bible says he just basically was the wine taster. He had to throw it back before Xerxes did to make sure there was no poison in the, in the, in the drink and in the wine. So that was really Nehemiah's function. And, and so it came to his attention one day. One of the captives had returned from, from, uh, from visiting Jerusalem. And, and they brought it to Nehemiah's attention that the, that the walls still laid in ruins. Even though the temple was restored and even though worship had been restored... The, the, the Jewish nation still very much was in disarray. 
uh, just was a really bad testimony, really didn't look good in the face of their neighboring nations and just really was not, uh, not a good situation at all. And, and there's so many lessons we can learn from the plight or from the life of Nehemiah. And we don't have time to talk about them all tonight. But one thing I really like about him is when he heard this news, the Bible says he wept. He went back to his chambers and he wept. And the Bible says that he just became overtaken with a burden, or we might say tonight for the purpose of this study, he became overwhelmed with a vision of what he wanted to happen in Jerusalem. And that was for the walls to be rebuilt and for integrity and, and just uh, total you know, respectability to return to the Jewish nation. And so he began to pray about that and he, he began to cry out to God. And, 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 and the Bible says even that he fasted. Uh, and he just really spent some time absorbing this vision and owning this vision. I could say so much about that, uh, but I don't have time tonight uh, because of the constraints of the clock. But he, he really owned the vision and he made it his own. And, and, uh, and, and, and just so many things about Nehemiah, the timing, the, the, if you go in and study it, the scripture says that uh, he first learned about the ruin of Jerusalem in, in like December of that year. And he waited to ask the king if he could do anything about it till April. So something there, evidently Nehemiah had a lot of wisdom to say that, you know what, I'm going to wait till just the right time and God's going to open the doors just right and he's going to make the way just where I need to be at the right moment, at the right place that I can talk to the king about my vision and my burden. So many things there that Nehemiah did right when you really get in and begin to study what he did. And I want to pause for a moment in the story and in the narrative and I, I want to highlight the fact again that Nehemiah got a vision. He got a, he got a burden. He got a purpose. And really a vision is simply this. A vision is just a, a picture of the present that inspires passion. I'm going to say that again. The Bible, or, 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 or we could use for, for this Bible context, a vision is just a picture of the future that inspires passion. So I want to pause tonight and just ask you, what is it in your life that, uh, that it's a picture of something that's not yet, something that you wish could be that inspires passion in you? It might be a, a situation in your family. It might be a situation in your relationships. Maybe it's in your marriage or your finances. Maybe it's here at, at, at church. Maybe God has laid a ministry on your heart. Maybe there's something that he wants you to do. But, but every one of us, if we just took a moment and reflected, I venture to say that everybody in this room has something inside of us that when we think about it in future tense, it inspires passion in our life. That's vision. That's purpose. That's, that's something that should be uh, nurtured and calculated and acted upon. That's what I'm talking about tonight. And, and, and another way you can look at vision, another thing you can say, it, it, it's a desire to make what could be and should be come true. A desire to make what could be and should be come true. So again, I ask you, what's in your life that could be and should be reality? And are you inspired to make that a reality and make it happen? I want to talk too tonight as we're going through this. Not only, uh, of course, the word of God is always applicable to all of us in our circumstances in our lives. But also as a whole tonight, what is God doing in our church? I think we would all agree that we're in a tremendous movement of God's spirit. And, and I love what pastor says, you know, just move me to where God is. 
you know, I want to get right in the middle of it. I want to be right in the middle of it. But what is it then? What is it that inspires us about the future collectively as a church to get where God wants us to be? What is that vision? What is that purpose? And what distractions do we have to eliminate to get there? So these are the things that I'm talking about as we walk through this story of Nehemiah. These are the things I want you to think about and apply into your own life. So uh, Nehemiah took great care in his timing, his prayer, uh, just his vision and cultivating that. And ultimately, to make a long story short, Nehemiah went before the king Artaxerxes, who was his captor. He had Nehemiah in captivity, but through the sovereignty of God, he, uh, King Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to go back to, the, to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. He granted him that permission. In fact, the Bible says he wrote him a letter of passage or a letter of, of you know, to get him there w- without any hindrance or any, any harm. And so ultimately that's what Nehemiah did. And when he got there, uh, all again, very fascinating scripture setting. Nehemiah, uh, he, he, he assembled a team and he, um, he just put together people that could help him with his goal. And uh, he very strategically picked out craftsmen and, and, and people that were able to do what he wanted him, them to do. And he put together a plan. And ultimately, when we pick up the scripture setting tonight, he was on the verge of finishing that wall. He was right at the end. All the, all the pla- all, everything was in place. But as we read in verse 2, uh, he had yet to put the gates up in their place. But other than that, he was basically done. They had fought through adversity. This is the time in the Bible, you may have heard it preached before, where they, they fought with a sword in one hand and built the wall with a, with a carpentry instrument on the other hand. You know, this is where they fought through great adversity. And somehow in all of their efforts and all of God's sovereignty, they were able to build the wall in 52 days. And that's where we pick it up tonight, where he was just about finished with the wall. And, and so at, at this point, all he had to do was put the gates on and, um, and, and be done. But there was one more threat that came Nehemiah's way. And it's this character, this cat named Sandballot. I don't know what kind of name Sandballot is, but that was this guy's name anyway. And uh, he thought, you know what, if we could distri- distract a leader and distract Nehemiah, we could distract and derail this whole project. And if you look back, Sam Ballard had been trying to do this all, all the way along. And this was really his last final effort. He was going, you know, just all out, full on, trying to, to get Nehemiah. So he invites Nehemiah to a meeting. He says, why don't we come down and, and, and meet together and let's, let's have a little powwow here and let's just talk. I've got some things I want to run by you. And that's where Nehemiah sent his great response, his wonderful response. He says, I am doing a great work. And I want to emphasize the word great. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down to you, cannot meet with you. Why, would the work, why should the work stop and I leave it and come down to you? He says they sent message to him four times and he kept answering that way. In other words, Nehemiah was saying, this is a God thing. This is the singular purpose of my life. This is the most important thing. This is why I came over to Jerusalem in the first place. And I'm not going to be distracted by something else. I'm not going to be derailed from my mission. I'm not going to waver to the left or the right and allow something else to, to distract me from my purpose. He had that clarity of vision and that singularity of purpose about him that is so amazing. And so he said, I will not be distracted by Sanballat and his company. 
And, and, and so it's a good thing, actually, as we find out here in a moment, it was a good thing, actually, that Nehemiah answered him that way because Sam Ballot's, uh, his motives were not pure. He actually was trying to set Nehemiah up to kill him. And, and whether, I'm not sure how much of that Nehemiah knew at the time, but he did know enough to know that he was not going to be distracted by his purpose. So tonight we're going to talk about three distractions that Nehemiah faced, and they're the same distractions we face today. And... Um, we're going to look at how Nehemiah dealt with them. The first distraction is simply opportunities. Opportunities. You know, uh, all of us every day have thousands of opportunities come our way. And, and usually if you're like me, if, if, if uh, you're like anything like mine, most of them are valuable, wholesome, good opportunities. They look like a good thing. They look like a good idea. It could be entertainment opportunities, athletic opportunities, financial opportunities. It could be an opportunity relationship-wise, a religious opportunity, uh, an investment opportunity, career, business. Maybe an opportunity to go on a vacation. Whatever it may be, we're usually faced every day with these good opportunities. And Nehemiah, had, he was faced with an opportunity. He had the opportunity to go meet with Sanballat. And the thing about opportunities is usually they're justifiable. Usually uh, we, can, we can say, you know, that would probably be a good idea. I, I, I think that might even be an open door. Maybe that was just the thing that I was waiting for. The problem is, though, is that we don't always step back and evaluate those opportunities in relationship to our vision slash burden slash calling. The trick is, the, the key is, is that we must be able to accomplish the important things by saying no to the merely good things. How many know tonight that good is actually the enemy of great? Good is the enemy of great. If you want to accomplish the main thing, the important thing, sometimes you have to say no to some good things, some valuable things. So tonight it's important that we, we not allow a good opportunity to rob us of of our vision and when a really good opportunity comes your way or you think it's a really good opportunity but but you step back and you realize it's a it's really a distraction I just want you to remember step back and say I am doing a good work I cannot come down and we need to work tonight to to distinguish between the good things and the main things the good opportunities and the things which we to which we feel called so for example uh, just I, I just tried to pick a few examples. I'm, I'm not being specific on any of these, just some things that came to mind, but I guess maybe relevant to my life. But with small children, you know, uh, there, there might be a time where, uh, you know, Little League might come calling and maybe want to draft my son for, you know, uh, the, the, the Major League, Little Leagues or whatever it is. But maybe I'll have to step back and say, all right, my vision for my family is to make it to heaven. And my vision for my family is to implant in them the word of God. And my vision for them is to be good Christians. And so I might have to choose then and say, all right, athletics is a good opportunity, but I really want them in quizzing and in the word of God. Maybe there's a trade-off there. I'm just, I'm just throwing out hypotheticals and examples, but to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, sometimes you have to pack to pick over the good opportunities for the really valuable sincere things that are going to get you where your vision is going to go. You know, years ago, I remember uh, I was a teenager and um, one of my dad's old colleagues from some job years ago showed up at the house from out of town. And of course, my dad felt obligated to let him spend the night. And he, the, the friend just kind of acted like it was old home week and he'd been missing my dad. And, you know, he just was hanging out, drinking iced tea. And my dad just kind of, you know, trying to be friendly and hospitable and 
you fired up the grill and cooked some burgers and just kind of wondered what the guy wanted, right? Well, finally, after several hours of just really small talk and nothing really in particular, this guy sits, sits my dad and, and my brother and I down at the table and uh, kicks back and he says, all right, he says, I, uh, Dave, what's, what's your favorite, what, what, what kind of car would you like to drive if you could drive any car? And I came up with some, I don't remember what it was, probably a Corvette or something, you know, whatever it was at 17 that I thought was cool. And he, he looks at Steve and he's like, oh, imagine what you would do with a million dollars, Steve. And, you know, and he looks at my dad, how would you like to be debt free and, you know, send your family on an exotic vacation? And then he slowly breaks out the Amway brochure. And, and we realize now why the guy's here is to recruit us to Amway. And, and, and if you're in Amway, that's fine, because I actually read the other day that that's one of the best. If you're going to do multi-level marketing, Amway's supposed to be one of the best and most reputable. It's been around the longest. But my dad evaluated that opportunity, and he realized that really wasn't in line with the goals he had in his life. Multi-level marketing really just wasn't what he was looking for. So, so my point is simply is, is what looked like a really good opportunity to get rich really quick had to be evaluated through the lens of what was the most important. Another quick example I, I'll tell you in passing is, is uh, within the last year or so, I had an opportunity to, to serve in a greater capacity. My, uh, my name had kind of come up for a, 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 a sectional youth pastor type situation. And uh, it was kind of in the early stages of that. Some people had approached me about it and uh, I talked to pastor about it. And I said, look, I just if, if I do that and, and should I get elected to that position, it would really take away from my time and what I feel God has called me to do with the young people at Grace and what God has put us here at this church to do. And so I passed on that opportunity. Being sectional youth pastor is a really good opportunity. That's a, it's a great way to expand your sphere of influence. It's a great way to, to impact more lives. But I, I believed and I felt like through the counsel of pastor that I was here, it, it would have detracted from my greater purpose and what God had called me to do. That's what I'm talking about when I say we've got to evaluate the good opportunities with our mission, our calling, our goal. And that's, what, that's exactly what Nehemiah did. The, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Let us lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset. Most of you have heard that scripture quoted a million times. And um, the, the, what I want to highlight out of that is it says, Lay aside the weight, the weight. It's not always a sin. It's not always something that is going to send you and split the gates of hell wide open. Sometimes it's just a distraction. Sometimes it's just a weight. And we've got to discard those things. We've got to set them aside. Remember, if the enemy can't make you sin, he will make you busy. He will make you busy. The second thing that Nehemiah had to deal with was criticism. And this is probably one of the, the, the harder of the, of the distractions to deal with is criticism. Uh, Nehemiah, at this point in our story, he, he had, he, they had attacked him at least four times already. And he just kept on fighting. He kept on going. But this time, in this setting, what Sanballat had done is he had called Nehemiah out directly. He, he said, you know, he attacked Nehemiah, his character. Uh, he, he specifically called out Nehemiah. Not the work that he was doing. Not the project. Uh, not, the, not the Jewish nation. But Nehemiah specifically. He began to criticize him and began to put some things out there. I want to read verses 5 through 7. It says in verse 5, Then Samballot sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, quote, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. 
And you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Now there's a couple things about this that I want to point out. First of all, the Bible says that Sanballat sent Nehemiah an open letter. Now you got to understand a little bit about the custom of the times. They, they would write on a parchment or a leather you know, uh, piece of, of cloth, leather there. And they would write that. And generally what they would do is they would roll it up tie it up, and then seal it so that the contents would be read only by the intended recipient. Of course, if it got to the recipient and the, and the seal was broken, they would know that the contents had been breached. It's kind of like, you know, today, every, the, the one thing I hear about BlackBerry is that BlackBerry can send secure emails. So this is kind of like sending a secure email through BlackBerry, right? But this is, this is the, the, uh, the Old Testament version of BlackBerry. But... Uh, uh, this, in this case, Sanballat did not do that. He sent an open letter to Nehemiah so that everybody, all the little messengers and all the little runners that took that, the Pony Express, if you will, that took that to Nehemiah, all of them could read it. All of them could spread the word, make sure the rumor got out there, make sure the gossip got out there that Nehemiah is plotting a revolt. And really the only reason he's here uh, is to make himself king and he's just plotting a rebellion Remember, Nehemiah, this was all birthed out of a burden. Nehemiah fasted and prayed. God put this on his heart. This was his life's passion, his life's calling. And here's these bozos saying that he's trying to rebel, trying to do something against the king. How does that make Nehemiah feel? Can you imagine if you're in his shoes, just trying to do the work of God, just trying to live for God, just trying to do something for God? You know, the one time, I, well, the one time God put something on my heart and I stepped out and did it, somebody said something about me. You ever felt that way? Kind of how Nehemiah felt. The one time that, that I really was going to get my family in church and really do something with my family. One time I was really going to knuckle down and, and get out of credit card debt or whatever your vision was or is. The one time somebody criticizes you, somebody tries to lay you low. This is where Nehemiah found himself. And, you know, Nehemiah could have really been justified in going on on the defensive. He could have, I don't think any of us would have second-guessed Nehemiah if, if he'd if he'd have made a proclamation and, and you know, maybe he said, all right, that's it. I could just see him, you know, that's it. Throws down his hammer and his sword and says, all right, I'm going out and meeting that guy. That, that's the last straw. That's probably what I'd have done. All right, enough is enough. Well, that's not what Nehemiah did, even though he would have been justified in doing that. Let's see what he did in verse 8. He says, then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. In other words, you're making them up. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Now watch this. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Wow, I love that. I love that. Essentially, Nehemiah goes to God and he says, God, you know, this isn't true. I'm just trying to do your work. I'm just trying to be your man. I'm just trying to do what you call me to do. Act on this vision. Act on this passion. God, strengthen my hands. Just give me strength to do what you call me to do. Let me be who you call me to be. I love that. I love that. It's like it's just a moment of honesty. It's a moment of, of just intense, uh, just crying out and saying, God, I can't do this without you. But if you will strengthen me, we can do it. So I want you to notice two very important things about the accusations that Samballot brought against Nehemiah. First of all, he accused Nehemiah of doing the opposite of what he was really there to do. Remember I mentioned that Nehemiah birthed 
this vision out of prayer and fasting and of God-ordained vision. Samballot was accusing him of the opposite, accusing him of revolt and revenge and that he was going to start a coup and all this stuff. So uh, Nehemiah says, God, you take care of my reputation. I'm going to leave all that to you, and I'm going to keep doing what you brought me here to do. What a great way to handle that. What a great way to fly in the face of adversity. And then the second thing Samballot did is he accused Nehemiah of what he was guilty of. Samballot accused Nehemiah of what he was guilty of. He was the one trying to plan an insurrection and wanting to, to revolt and start a, re, a, a revolution and all that stuff. And, and what we find, the way we apply that uh, in our lives today is that generally when somebody stands up, a man or a woman of God stands up and says, you know what, I have a vision. I'm going to do something for God. I'm part of Grace Church and we're going somewhere and I'm going to be a part of that. Or I've got a vision for my finances or my job or my career, whatever it is. When, when a man or a woman stands up and declares that, people slash the status quo generally need an explanation. Because they're not used to people standing up and saying, I have a vision. I have a plan. I'm going somewhere with my life. I know where God's called me to do. That's counterculture. That's non-status quo. So the status quo is going to demand uh, an explanation. And they're going to try to put you in a box. And they're going to try to criticize you because of it. Often it's because they're unwilling to accept the truth. So they'll accuse you of something else. So for example, let's just say that uh, you want to be a stay-at-home mom. And that's your goal because you want your kids to, to have you there. And those things. Well, you might hear somebody say, well, they just don't have what it takes to make it in the workforce. You know, that's a criticism that's that's coming against your vision. So a, a, a father, a husband that says, you know what, I don't want to be married to my career. I'm going to start leaving work a little early and spending family time and being intentional about being with my family in the evenings and on weekends. Maybe he hears criticism that says he doesn't have what it takes to make it in the marketplace. He's losing his edge. He's losing his grip. All of these things are examples that in a spiritual sense. You step out and you you want to do something for God. And what's the first thing people say? Well, you're. You're a holier than thou. You know, you're just trying to be, you're trying to be something you're not. You're trying to be better than me, aren't you? You know, those are the kinds of things. When, and, and you remember when you hear that, it's people that are, that are not going where you're going in God trying to wrap you into a mold and put you into a box and figure out what you're about. That's why they're throwing those criticisms at, at you. So what's the solution? The same thing that Nehemiah did. First of all, cry out to God and say, oh, God, strengthen my hands. But also the, the easiest solution and the best solution is just finish what you started. Just go ahead and finish it. And when you finish it, when you get to the goal, when you get to the vision uh, becoming a reality, you'll silence all the critics. You'll make a believer out of them because you will have done what you set out to do. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So if you're overwhelmed with criticism, get on your knees. Pour it out to God, vent to him, vent your frustration, say, God, I'm overwhelmed, they're criticizing me, and then get back in there and keep fighting for your vision. Keep doing what you're doing, keep working. If they criticize you for your faith, for taking a stand, get in there and make a stand anyway. Men and women with vision stand out, and that makes people uncomfortable. Remember Philippians 1 and 6 that says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day 
of Jesus Christ. God wants you to finish what you started. He wants to finish what he started in you. So get that vision, get that dream, and keep fighting. The third and final distraction that Nehemiah had to deal with was fear. Fear. I think we can all relate to fear. Nehemiah actually did face a threat to his life because in verse 10 the Bible says, When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetable, wow, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are going to kill you. At night, So let me just put that in our English. What, it, what they were saying, he was, he, this guy came to Nehemiah and he said, you are about to be the victim of assassination attempt. So let's go into the temple, into the uh, holy place and shut the door and that way we'll be safe. All right. So, so he was telling Nehemiah that there was a life threat on him. So when, bottom line was when Sam Ballot realized they would not get Nehemiah to come to them, he found an insider to manufacture this story and, and, and tell him that an assassin was on the way. And uh, th- there were some problems with this because um, the, the, the thing was where, if you look at it in context, where they were encouraging Nehemiah to go hide was a place that only the priest could go in the temple. Nehemiah was not even qualified to go in there. So listen to what Nehemiah says in verse 11. He says, but I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go in the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And I love that. He's like, should I flee? Jared is kind of like saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to run for my life. Boy, they think I am a coward. I can fight. I got what it takes. You know, I still got some game. You know, that's kind of what he was saying. And then he went on to say that, hey, you know, I, I don't belong in there anyway. So had Nehemiah listened to that, had he acted on, on their temptation to, to fall into a state of fear, had he done that, first of all, he would have discredited, discredited himself by showing himself a coward. And then secondly, he would have discredited himself because he would have violated the holy place and he would have lost credit and favor with the people. They wouldn't have followed him, any, followed him anymore as a leader because, um, because of that cowardice and because of the, of the discredit he would have put to the temple. So watch this. Nehemiah basically said, so will a man like me flee? Will a man like I go into the temple? Basically, at this point, what Nehemiah was saying is not only have I embraced the vision, but the vision has embraced me. In other words, this is so much bigger than I am. This completing the wall is beyond just me and and just me getting out there and doing this. That even if my life is taken and even if my life is on the line for it, that's okay because the mission will live on. In other words, he had come to a place in his vision that said... I will do whatever it takes, including laying down my life, that the cause go on, that the vision go on. And that's really an amazing place to be in anybody's life. And I, and I long for the day when we're to that place in our life where our vision for what God can do in our life and our dream for where we want God to be in God and what we want God to do is so big that we realize it's bigger than us, it's greater than us, and if I have to lay myself down, it's okay because the dream has to live on. That's a great place to be. That's when the vision has embraced us. That's when the vision has embraced us. But in our world today, we, uh, we are constantly bombarded by fears. Usually it comes in the form of what if? What if? In a relationship, you might say, you know, what if he's not, or you might say, he's not exactly what I'm looking for, but what if no one else comes along? You might say, 
Um, I need to say no in this situation, but what if it costs me my bonus? What if I lose my status or position? Here's the biggest one. What if I try and fail? That's the big one. That's the one we wrestle with the most. What if I step out there and I fail? What if I act on this vision that God's given me and I fail? We can't allow the fear of the unknown to cause us to miss out on what God wants to do through us. I'll ask you this question tonight. What would you do if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that you would succeed? If failure was out of the picture and you knew you would succeed, what would you do? That's a sobering question. It's the million dollar question. What would any of us do if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt we would succeed? Don't let fear cause us to miss out on what God's wanting us to do. I had an experience. We, one time a company I worked for sent us to a, a team building exercise. They sent us to this place out at LSU. It was an obstacle course. And, you know, we, you had to work together to accomplish tasks. The idea was to build camaraderie and teamwork. And we had to, you know, you had to walk on, like, spare tires. And you had to, you know, cross over these bridges and stuff. And the only way to do it was to work with a team and join hands and, you know, seeing Kumbaya or whatever, you know, it's all this team building stuff. Well, then we got to this, this last part, and this part of the challenge was a telephone pole. And, you know, what are telephone poles? 30 feet, 40 feet, something like that, shooting straight up in the air. And it had those little pegs on it for you to climb. And uh, what they did was is they, they hooked you up to a, uh, to like a bungee, some kind of, it was a harness with a bungee. And uh, you had to climb to the top of this telephone pole. And, you know, I mean, it, it was, you know, so big around at the top, you know. And you had to perch up there and jump. And when you jumped, there was this, essentially it was a trapeze that you would try to catch and, and, and hold on. And, and what wound up happening is, is it all sounded real good in theory. And it all looked real good from the ground. But about halfway up that telephone pole when it started swaying like this the higher up you got and then when you realize that you had to really hold your balance and keep your balance to stand up straight that high in the air on something on a platform about this big around by the time you got up there it was a pretty big ordeal you know you're pretty scared and and I was scared I, I'm not gonna lie to you this was that you know that fear where your heart feels like it's right here in your throat and uh, you, you just you, you kind of start trembling a little bit and you kind of break out in the sweats well it was it was kind of that kind of fear and and so you're standing up there, and what, ha what ends up happening, the reason this is part of a team-building exercise is what happens is, is just naturally all of your team members down on the ground start, hey, you can do it, come on, jump, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, what, what I had noticed was is that only the people that really worked out and had strong, like not just naturally strong, but developed, toned, strong upper body, they were the only ones that could catch that trapeze because of the inertia. It just kind of took your weight. And you would hit that trapeze, and unless you were really, really, really strong, it would just, you'd just keep going, no matter how hard you tried to hang on, and you would fall. So I'm standing up there, and, and I'm trying to get the nerve to jump. There's nothing to hold on to. You can't hold on to the, to the zip line, nothing to hold on to. And you're just looking at that trapeze, wondering if you can even make it. It looks like it's 1,000 miles away by the time you're standing up there. And that fear's in your throat, and you're, you're trembling, and your teammates cheering you on. You know, if you turn around and walk down now, you're going to look stupid because you know, you're up there now. And you feel that fear. You feel real, genuine fear of the unknown. So I jumped, and of course, I didn't have strong upper body strength. I know that comes as no surprise. 
and I, I hit the trapeze and missed it and thanked the Lord, of course, for the harness and the, the zip line that saved my life. But it was, it was quite an experience. It's one I'll never forget. I don't, you don't get the opportunity to jump off a telephone pole every day. So it's something that's always kind of stuck in my mind. But the point is this. We get to the top of what God wants us to do. We, we climb that mountain and God deals with us and gives us vision and burden and we talk to a pastor and we say, we're going to do this and we're going to start this and we're gonna, we're, our family's going to do this and we get right up to the top and we get afraid to jump and to take that leap of faith into the unknown of what God wants us to do. So as your team member today, as your teammate, I'm on the ground and I'm cheering you on, get beyond the fear Jump out, take that leap of faith, do that thing that God has called you to do. As a church, God's calling us into the great unknown. It's a great adventure. Where we've come from, I believe, is just the beginning. It's merely setting the stage for where God wants us to do. Church, collectively, let's take a leap of faith into the unknown and just see what God will do. We cannot let fear distract us now. We've come too far. We've climbed up the mountain. We've climbed up the telephone pole. We can't let fear stop us and rob us now. What would you do if you knew you would succeed? One more quick illustration, and then I'm going to conclude. But uh, when we went to Ireland back in 2008, that was a situation just like I'm talking about with the telephone pole, except in real life. You get right up to the jump-off point, you know, the point of getting on an airplane and taking a family that comprised a a uh, 16-year-old teenager that we had adopted, a six-month-old baby, and a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler to a foreign country to work for God. And, and you get right up to that point, and you start wondering. You think, the IRA could bomb us. What if the kids get sick, and there's no, we don't know where the hospital is? What if the finances don't work out? What if the, you know, the pledges don't come through? What if we um, get lonely and want to come home? What if it doesn't work out? All of the what ifs come through your mind. But the reason we went to Ireland is because the risk of not doing what God had called us to do, the, the risk of failing to do that would have weighed heavier on us than not going at all. In other words, we, had, we were compelled to take the leap of faith to do the vision that God had given us. We felt compelled. We, even if we tried and failed, that was a greater option than not trying at all because it was in the heart of us. It was in our vision. It was what God had put on us to do, and so we took the leap of faith. So in conclusion, three distractions, three distractions, opportunities, criticisms, and fear. Remember, when you're doing a great work and you... Remember, when these things come, just speak to your situation, speak to your distraction and say, I am doing a great work. I don't have time to come down. In fact, put the emphasis on great. Say, I am doing a great work and I don't have time to come down. You're doing a great work. You don't have time to come down. Success always silences the critics and the significance of your calling rules out the option of retreat. So that's the way you deal with the way you deal with opportunities that come your way. Remember, you are doing a great work. You don't have time to come down. The way you deal with criticism is that success will silence the critics. The way you deal with fear is that the significance of your calling rules out the option of retreat. Philippians 3, 13 through 14, the writer says, One thing, one singular thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God 
in Christ Jesus. Setting everything else back. Laying aside some things. Walking away from some good opportunities for the one most important singular thing in your life. As we stand tonight in conclusion, here is the test to know if your mission in life is over. The test to know, you want to know how you know if your mission in life is over? If you are alive, it isn't. If you are alive, it isn't. And remember, remember tonight, any success that you have, any success in reaching a goal, any success in seeing your vision come to pass, it will always bring glory to God. It's worth pu pushing through every distraction, every fear, every criticism, because it will bring glory to God when you get where you're going. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so thankful for your word. Thank you, God, for the incredible story of Nehemiah. Lord, in the incredible way that we can learn from the way he handled situations. God, I pray for every person here tonight, all of our Grace family, Jesus. I pray tonight, God, that you would help us to just absorb your word, Lord. Apply it to our hearts and our minds, Lord. Apply it to our lives, God, and let us live this out this week, Lord. It, it's not just to come here and go through the, the motion of, of, of going through a Bible study, Lord, but we want to take this with us. Take it to the streets, Lord, and, and apply this to our lives and know, God, that we are going to see great things in all of our lives and in our church collectively, God, because we are focused on the high calling of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, and everybody say amen. All right, are you ready tonight to tackle any obstacle that comes your way? Are you ready to stay focused? Praise God. God bless you tonight. Let everybody know that Grace Church is what's up. God bless you in Jesus' name. Thank you for being here tonight. Amen.